Go with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. For the next few minutes, I want to share with you a little word that I'm quite confident, even though I didn't go back through my notes, I didn't go back through our, all of our old videos together, but for some reason, I'm quite confident I've preached this to you. Um, I don't always memorize what I preach everywhere I preach it. Some things stand out, and I know where I preach something. Other things are um, mishmash. I said it in five different buildings over six different weeks, and I can't exactly figure out which one it was, you know. And sometimes it was a year ago or a month ago or ten years ago. Um, I have a feeling, though, we've covered this ground. I know I covered this ground in my John series. That's a hint as to what New Testament book we're going to next, in case you wondered, out of Isaiah. And so you've probably heard a derivative of the things I'm going to say to you tonight. I have stopped letting that stop me. There was a time in my travels that I would let it stop me if I had preached something too recently because I have an online audience. And I thought, well, they watched that two Sundays ago. I'm not going to preach that again. And so I would preach something new. And, and I, the Father will bless any of it. As long as you point the spotlight on Jesus, boom. I mean, I've, I've watched as God does great things in rooms. You just put the spotlight on Jesus. But I have turned away from some topics and texts before because I'd be like, well, I preached that last week in another state. Even though this room that I'm in today hadn't heard it. But I would still think they have. And that's a big part of our ministry. And so I've always been cognizant of that. Less so lately. And I really don't know why. Like I didn't have a moment where God smacked me and went, stop doing that. But I did, I have felt the Holy Spirit more and more as he starts to put a little more depth into some of these things, like just a little bit more spice on that verse that I didn't have six months ago, that I felt the Holy Spirit going, preach it again. I know you just did, but open it again and, and sort of reach the cup down into the well. There's more water there than you know. You know, it's colder than you think. And so forgive me. If it's something you go, I heard that not long ago, because I, I also think it's something for where we are and it's something for where we're going. So I want to start in verse seven. I want to read one verse from this chapter. My gut wants to read the entire fifth chapter of Isaiah. I want to do one of those intensive context driven verse by verse, but instead Isaiah five, seven, one verse and I'll just try to talk the context a little bit. This is a chapter that's often called God's vineyard or God's disappointing vineyard. Um, verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. You could say it this way. He looked for justice, but all he saw was oppression because the look connects to what he sees. He looks for justice, but he sees oppression for, for righteousness, but instead, instead he hears cries for help. He both looks and he listens he looks for one thing, he sees the other. He listens for one thing, he hears the other. This is God, a description of how God views the two characters at the top of the verse. So let's go back to the top. The vineyard of the Lord, behold, is the house of Israel. 
The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So God is dealing with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In the top of the verse, at the end of the verse, God shows up looking for justice but only sees oppression. He shows up listening for righteousness but only beholds a cry for help. And so what we know in the verse is that God looks to Israel and Judah to see if they are executing justice and righteousness. But when he sees them, he finds that they are not executing righteousness and they are not executing justice. That's the theology of the text. This is what God sees when he looks at Israel in Isaiah 5. Okay, Not, not today. I, I, let's ignore today for a second. We're staying contextual. In Isaiah 5, this is what God sees when he looks at Israel and Judah. But don't miss this because this is a key to interpretation for a lot of things that happen in the New Testament at the top of verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, Judah's is pleasant plant. What's the vineyard of the Lord according to Isaiah 5, 7? The house of Israel. Who are his plants according to Isaiah 5, 7? The men of Judah. Israel and Judah, God's people. So, put it all together. God calls Israel and Judah a vineyard and his own plants. Whatever's inside the vineyard, he planted it. What's the vineyard? What's inside the vineyard? His people. The vineyard is the nation. His people are the plants, right? And so this is the sort of underlying adjective of, that describes Israel. In another passage in Isaiah, he calls them trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God himself has planted in his own soil the people of Israel. Now, God is simply using a motif they've already seen in Genesis. You've heard us say this many times. God reaches down into the dirt and he pulls Adam out of the ground and he breathes into him a life-giving spirit and Adam becomes the likeness and the image of God. Okay, that's the dirt that God cultivates a human out of. Then as you get to Isaiah, God says of Israel, you are the people that I've planted in the dirt. I've, I've pulled man from the earth. I've placed man in the earth. You are my people. You are the vineyard. And vineyards bring forth grapes. And grapes bring forth, not jelly, wine. <laughs> really depends on what denomination you're from, <laughs> right? How you answer that question. Depends on your Christian background. You go, I'm bring for jelly. It's not really what the Bible's going for. That one's never used in the Word. That's an allegory the Bible skips. Is grapes make good jelly. Um, but for purposes of argument and for the allegory laid out in the narrative of the Bible, it produces fruit, it produces wine. And so those things then become a part of the biblical story. Jesus comes along and turns water to wine. Paul comes along and says, you that are in the kingdom produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so you keep coming back to these things. There's fruit you can eat. There's fruit you couldn't eat in the garden. Those stories are there over and over again, almost as a way of saying there are things that are good and then there are things that can be misused. You know, wine can bring joy to the soul, according to Proverbs, but it can also lead to the drunkenness that Paul warns the Ephesian church about. You go, well, the answer then is to leave all of it alone. Well, if that's the answer you need to leave all of it alone, then leave all of it alone. But that's not the message the Bible gives, but rather that that which is good can go sour and go bad and be misused in the same way that the fruit can rot 
but we don't throw all fruit out because some fruit rots. We just find ripe fruit. And that is sort of an unspoken thing about both the winery and the vineyard. I mean, you know that it can be positives and negatives. Okay, so using that illustration, then Israel and Judah both have positive and negative things. And you don't have to read much Old Testament to know that that must be true because there's good things about the nation of Israel as God's people, but then there's some horrific and awful things about the nation of Israel or Judah as God's people. And one exists with the other and sometimes like at the same time. And so they are the vineyard and they are the vine, they are the fruit, they are the wine. That's the motif. And it also then sort of comes into full illustrative fashion in John 2, when Jesus shows up at the wedding in Cana. And they are well drunk. And so Jesus takes a group of well drunk people and gives them good wine. He doesn't want to be a party pooper. Instead, he continues the party. And he goes, he turns the water to wine, which is a miracle that essentially takes us from inception to full maturity or from where we start to where we end. Or if it's a journey motif, it takes you from you to the you you will be. And how many of you know that was your journey with Jesus? Because you can look back on when you were just water and now he's turning you into a beautiful vintage of wine. You were just one thing, but now you're not just one thing. You're something else. And water doesn't turn to wine overnight. The miracle that Jesus performs, I think, is to show the possibility of the transformative power of Christ, that Christ can take us from water to wine, and he does it at his pace. Now, I've had some water to wine moments in my life that seemed super fast, like miraculously marriage a cana fast. Like I thought one thing one day, and I had a revelation of Jesus, and I never thought that again. Like I was a different guy. I didn't treat someone the same way. I didn't look at that verse the same way. I didn't see God the same way. It was almost like it happened at the snap of a finger because it was a water to wine miracle. And I've had other moments where I think my water is just now starting to at least look like grapes. Like it's going to take me a long time to get to the wine at this pace in that area of my life. What I don't do now is freak out about the slow pace of this water. Like, I've got different jars in my own spirit that I could point at and go, that jar right there is probably two years down the road. I'm on my way. I'm not there yet. Don't drink it. Don't, don't drink it. It's not yet wine. It wouldn't taste right, but we're getting there. I got other jars. I've watched God do things. I'm not who I used to be. I trust that vintage. Go, you can drink from that cup. Don't drink deep. You can drink from that cup. And you're the same way. If, if you're honest, if you're not, then you're probably just water. You know, you need transformed into wine. There's some things in there that definitely are transforming. And I, you could look at this a lot of ways. It could be your salvation experience. It could be your transformative experience. It could be your experience with Scripture. It could be the way you see the world. These are things that are turning. These are things that are changing. Now, with all of that said, I land on Jesus because I don't have a better place to land. Because, I mean, I can talk about you and I can talk about me all day long. And all we'll do is leave you know, frustrated and mad. You talk about Jesus and watch how Jesus does it. Well, to me, that's impressive. Here's one of the things that is, is a challenge in the, in the world of Christianity theologically, which is what is the role of the church in relation to, say, the role of Israel, the nation of Israel, this formed people on the other side of the globe, what are, what, are, what are we? Is God still sort of smiling on Israel 
while he has his church. And I, for a long time, have struggled with that dichotomy to say that God is smiling on a group of people while he has his church, whom is the body of his son. So, I mean, we either believe Paul or we don't. Church is the body of Christ. And so is God sort of splitting his passion or is because he's God, he's got an equal amount of love for this nation over here and then he's got a love for this people. And have you noticed that if we have God in love with a nation, I'm, 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 I'm running the risk here, so you walk out on the limb with me or not. But have, we no, have you ever noticed that if God's in love with a nation, then God very quickly becomes a God who can be in love with nations. So he can prefer one nation over the other which then allows us to have evil nations and holy nations. And if we got that, then maybe we need to take over our nation. Because if we take over our nation, then we can keep from being one of the bad ones. And we could be one of the good ones. So when God has a nation that has natural borders, we run the risk of turning God into a God who prefers one nation over another nation. Which means God could prefer the way these people live versus the way these people live. And have you ever noticed that when that becomes our version of God, we're always in the good one? No? I'm the only one who saw that? I mean, I mean, I've noticed that. We're always in the good one, but we've got two or three that we think are probably on the bad list that we're pretty sure God's not in on. Okay. We've wrangled with this and wrestled with this in the church to where there's fights about whether or not... Is that replacement theology? You think the church replaced Israel? And so I'm here to say up front, I do not believe that the church replaced Israel. Okay? I don't believe the church replaced Israel. We were too late. Jesus did. Here's why I believe that. John chapter 15, verse number 1. I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. John 15, 1 is the basis for why I believe Jesus replaced everything. I'm not picking on Israel. Please understand, I'm spotlighting Jesus. What's Isaiah 5 tell you that God said Israel was? What was Israel in Isaiah 5? God's vineyard. Right? God's vineyard was Israel. And God's choice plant inside the vineyard was the people of Judah. God goes, my vineyard where I produce my good fruit that becomes my highest vintage of wine, my people. Jesus comes along and says, I am the true vine. Why does he throw the word true in front of it? Because they already believe they're the vine. They're the vine, they're the vineyard, they're the branches. They're the choice people inside the choice garden. And Jesus comes along and goes, I'm the choice person. I'm the choice garden. If you're in me, you're in the garden. This was revolutionary, path-breaking, and this is the kind of talk that gets Jesus killed. This right here. Because he's looking at his own vineyard, his own people, and he's saying, I am actually the vineyard of God. And from this time forward, if you want to be in the vineyard, 
It's not who your father is or whether you were circumcised or what part of the planet you live on. It's not your tongue, your skin tone, or your religious heritage. It's be in me. If you're in me, welcome home. You're in the vineyard. And what's amazing to me is how many of us Christians struggle with the last five minutes I just preached about, the Is- about Israel and Jesus replacing it, but they don't struggle with that last 30 seconds I preached, that Jesus is the true vine, and if you want to get in, you got to come in through Jesus, and if you want to grow, you got to be in Jesus, and if you want to produce fruit, you got to be in Jesus, and every Christian I know in America will go, amen, 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 and if I just hadn't bothered with that other five minutes, we'd be okay. But the moment you start to reveal what it means to be the true vine, it means no one else can be. Because he can't be the vine and somebody else is the vine. Like, he's the man of God, but there's also another guy of God. There's either Jesus alone or there's no Jesus. Christ is the head. We are but the body. Jesus then says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that, right, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, let me sort of slow down, personalize it just a little bit individually, because we've been talking corporate, okay? I've just introduced to you that I, I don't believe that there's a people of God on the earth outside of Jesus. I'm just, I'll just say that straight up. No ambiguous talk. I do not believe that there's a chosen people of God on the earth outside of Jesus. Peter said... You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking to the people of Christ. You are the holy nation if you're in Christ. Christ is the true vine. Okay? That's my heart. I don't have room for there to be anything but Jesus. I'm a Jesus guy. I I, I was going to say I'm sorry I'm a Jesus guy. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry I'm a Jesus guy. I'm, I'm a Jesus guy, and I'm not sorry about being a Jesus guy. What I am sorry about is if people are turned away from Jesus because I'm exclusively a Jesus guy. I'm sorry about that. But I have to exclusively be a Jesus guy. And I honestly don't know how we can follow Jesus if we're not exclusively Jesus people. Because if we're not, then we might jump off and follow something else. When times get tough following Jesus, and they're going to get tough following Jesus. So when times get tough following Jesus, we just go find something else to follow. If Jesus asks too much, just go follow the one that doesn't ask for much. And and whatever that might look like. And so following Jesus, because Jesus is exclusive. So now let me personalize it. Corporately, Jesus is the replacement of the churches. You're way too late. So no, when people go, do you think the church replaces Israel? I know know I'm tricking them, but I go, no. And they go, praise God. Because what they think I mean is, no, Israel's still the people of God. The church is just ancillary. But what I actually mean is, no, the church is too late. Jesus already did it. Jesus is... Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 1.20. All of the promises of God are in Christ, and they are yes and they are amen to the glory of God. All the promises of God are in who? Christ. I'm going to try it again, because I have one answer. So you're either stunned, blown away, or asleep. So I'm going to assume it's blown away. All the promises of God are in Christ. They're not in Israel. They're not in the Ten Commandments. They're not in a geography. They're not in a piece of property. They're not in circumcision. They're not in the law. All the promises of God are in Christ. So who's the fulfillment of all the promises? Christ. Who's the recipient of all the promises? Christ. They're my amen to his yes. So if I want in his promises, I've got one guy to go see. Christ. 
The risen Christ becomes my entrance into the kingdom. The risen Christ becomes my entrance into the, the covenant. The risen Christ becomes, we're going to take of his body and his blood tonight. And I believe with all my heart that is, that is a representation of the entrance into his covenant. The entrance into his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the living in my heart. And we've been doing that for 20 centuries because we don't think there's anyone else. Because we don't break the body of somebody else. And we don't drink the blood of somebody else because we know it's only Christ and it's only in Christ. Okay, that's settled. Let's personalize it. Let's bring it to you. What bothers me in John 15, I love, love, love the vineyard story of John 15. I actually believe that Jesus does some of his best work when he starts talking and dealing with wine and vineyard. It's some of his best parables. It's some of his strongest, I mean, not that he has a weak teaching, but it's some of his most pointed teaching. Um, and I think it might be one reason they call him a glutton and a wine-bibber. I've even got a little pet theory that is absolutely unsupported by scholarship. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that up front. But I have a pet theory that Jesus must have been raised close to a winery. Because he has an unnatural amount of knowledge. And you go, well, he's the son of God. Yeah, but God doesn't play unfair with Jesus. And like download information about the internet into him. And like let him know how to build a rocket ship to the moon. Because, well, he's Jesus. He knows all this. No, he's a man who is God. And so I, I just had this feeling he grew up near a winery. He has way too much inside info about how it works for a carpenter from Nazareth that had to spend some time hanging out with husbandmen. His illustrations are spot on in regards to this. Um, here's a by the way. By the way. Um, here's a parabolic reason that I believe that Jesus becomes the replacement for all things. Jesus is approached by a group of scribes that say to him, by what authority do you do the things that you do? This is the closing refrain of Mark 11. And Jesus goes, okay, what, by what authority did John do it? And they converse amongst themselves, John the, John the Baptist, because they hated John the Baptist. But they're scared to say that out loud. They're scared to say, well, John the Baptist was of men because they, they knew the crowd loved him and they're people pleasers. But they're also scared to say, well, John the Baptist was of God because then they know Jesus is going to go, then why didn't you accept him? So they're stuck. You get stuck a lot when you get to Jesus. You do. You just get stuck. You get stuck with your own lies a lot of times when you get with Jesus. And so they go, well, we're not going to answer you. And Jesus goes, okay, well, then I'm not going to answer you either. Which is beautiful, except he then does. He just doesn't do it the way they wanted him to. He tells a story. Classic Jesus. And in classic Jesus fashion, he tells the story of the wicked vine dressers. And listen to this parable. There was a man who bought a vineyard, and he hired a bunch of vine dressers. And he went away into a far-off country, and then when it was time to reap his grapes, he sent a servant to reap them. And when the servant showed up, they beat him up, sent him home. And so he sent another servant. And when that servant showed up, they beat him up, sent him home. So he sent another servant and they killed him. Some of them they killed, some of them they beat, some of them they stoned. And so he sent his own son. And he said, when they saw the son, they said, let's kill him and keep the vineyard for ourselves. And Jesus said, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to those wicked vine dressers when he returns? And the scribes and Pharisees say, well, he'll kill them and he'll punish them. And Jesus says, you're right. 
and he'll give the vineyard to a nation that shows evidence of its fruit. Hear it again. He'll give the vineyard to somebody else. Jesus then in John 15 says, I'm the vine, you're part of my vineyard. So right there in that parable, Jesus is showing that whatever you thought about the people of God is going to be filtered through the Son and God is going to give to the people of God through the Son everything that belongs to the vineyard owner. What bothers me about John 15 is that we only use this beautiful vineyard passage to put people under condemnation. Because let me reread for you verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And we read stuff like that and we get up and say this to people. If you're not producing something for God, he's going to cut you off out of his vineyard. And then they go down where he's burning branches in the fire that don't produce fruit. And all we do with a beautiful vineyard passage is make people feel guilty because they don't have big enough grapes and they don't have a vintage of wine that's pure. And what Jesus says is that if you're in me, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes it away. Or actually, in the Greek... The Father cleans it off and picks it up. And in the vineyard world, you tie off, you, you, you lift up the vine that isn't producing the proper grapes so that it cannot, so, so that it is supported only by the root system instead of leaning up against something that's weakening it. And so the vineyard owner doesn't go to the vine that doesn't have fruit and hack it with a machete. He goes and does surgery on it so that it brings forth more fruit. And we've been using stuff like this to condemn people because they're not quote-unquote good enough. But a good, vine, a good winery doesn't go through wholesale torching their branches because they're never going to have a vintage of wine. Instead, they go to work and they take care of their vines that bring forth fruit so that they bring forth even more fruit. And Jesus goes along to say, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, I abide in you, a branch that cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now listen to this repetition. It's Jesus going right back over the beauty. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me, I'm in verse 5. I'm in him, he bears forth fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If you don't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and withered. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Stop. If you read that and went, see, some people don't bear fruit. God's going to cut them off. But you're missing the context. He already told all of them, you are bearing fruit. Don't worry about it. You're already bearing fruit. You're already clean. And in the areas you're not bringing forth to your best, Dad's not cutting you off. Dad's picking you up. The Father's picking you up and He's putting you in a position to produce for the kingdom. What we need to be doing is not condemning people for their failure to produce fruit. We need to be putting them in the position of knowing who they are in Christ so they can start to produce fruit. Put them in the position of being loved like you should be in a vineyard by an owner that loves you so much. And then the fruit, as Jesus continues to talk about, you'll bear fruit. You ask and it'll be done for you. Look at verse 9. The Father loved me. I've loved you. Abide in my love. 
Abide in my love. What did he say earlier? If you abide in me, you'll bring forth fruit. What, what's it mean to abide in him? Abide in my love in verse 9. If you keep my commandments, then that's how you abide in my love. Just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you that my joy will remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now, before you read the next verse, let me acknowledge one glaring stoplight in that text. And that stoplight was, if you keep my commandments, you abide my love. And that's where we stop reading and we go, see, if you break the commandments, he's going to cut you off the vine. And I don't know why we always stop short of the best stuff. It's like getting right to the end of the movie where the plot's about to be, the twist is about to be revealed. And we stop and we just quit the movie and we call all of our friends and go, that movie was stupid. We go, well, what'd you think about the ending? And you go, I quit before I got to the end. You go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean you didn't even make it to the end? No, it was a stupid movie. I didn't like it. You, you got to give it a chance, man. Go watch the last five minutes. The whole movie's redeemed. Stuff you didn't even know was happening was happening. You got to watch the last five. Why do we stop? We're so close to the money right here. We're so close to the moment. Look at the next verse. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus says, you abide my love by keeping my commandments. What my, what's my commandments? Love each other. This is why I told you earlier, it can get difficult following Jesus. Because Jesus tells you to love each other. And the hardest thing in the world is to love people you don't want to love. People that have hurt you, people that have wounded you, people that have misused you. Which people do you have to love? Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, okay, my neighbor, that's cool. That's cool. Love my neighbor, that's cool. Love your enemies. You're, oh, gummit Jesus. Why'd you go? Why'd you have to go one step farther? You could have stopped with love your neighbor. I could have, I could have excluded some people because I don't know everybody. Right? They tried that on Jesus one time. He goes, Who's my neighbor? And of course, here comes the story of the Good Samaritan, and your neighbor's gonna be the guy you, you can't stand. That's going to be the truth, the reality becomes that your neighbor is most often your enemy. But the truth is, is that whether it's your neighbor or your enemy, there's no one excluded from who you're told to love. So guess what? Being a part of the vine means that we love people. If we're going to be anything, we're going to be a place of love. We don't have to be a place that's big. We don't have to be a place that's flashy. We don't have to be a place that has everything figured out. We're not going to have everything figured out. It's going to take a long time to figure some things out if we ever figure them out at all. But we're not going to have to wait around to figure out how to love people. We're not going to have to take classes on loving people. The more we see Jesus and we know we're loved, the more we'd be loving. And our intention is to see Jesus, abide in Jesus so that we are loving. And as we love, we exude the fruits of the kingdom. Because here's the real news. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus has a vineyard. You're in it. Okay? Don't point at somebody else over on the other side of the globe and wonder. You're the, I didn't mean this room. I mean the people of Christ. All those other churches you disagree with or the ones that are doing it wrong or the doctrine's not right, they're in the vineyard. They're part of it. You don't have to get all excited about every plant in the garden. Some of them stay away from them. I mean, there's a few that have got some thorns. They'll get you. You know, I've learned this in the church over the years. Like, that one's thorny. Leave them alone. They don't like to be touched. 
That one needs left alone. They don't need much water. They don't need any attention. You touch them, they'll stab you in the hand. They'll laugh at you. Just stay away. You know. But we're in him. He's the vine. We're the branches. Except, let's accept the challenge. Let's accept the great challenge of being disciples of Christ. The, the disciples of Jesus love. And let's be thankful for the opportunity to do so. I'll give you a really challenging prayer. And that is, Father, I want to work on loving others as you love them. And I know that praying this means you're going to cross my path with people that are hard to love. Because that's the only way you love people as he loves them. And so I realize that I'm going to get wronged, harmed, hurt, Ignored, rejected. I'm not, and I know you're not doing it, Lord, but I know there's people out there that need your love. And I want, to make an, I want to have an encounter with those whom you love and then show me how to love them. And be true to your prayer. This is why I think the discipline of prayer is important. That way we keep going back to the same prayer over and over again so we don't forget. Because sometimes we'll get up on Monday all gung-ho and we'll pray, God, show me someone to love this week. And then we get wrapped up in jobs and work and school and money and spouses and houses and yards and stuff and stores. And then we get to Friday and somebody cuts us off in traffic. We're ready to get a baseball bat and go wailing off on somebody's head. And the Lord goes, four days ago, you want me to give you somebody to love? Did you forget about that? You go, oh, I forgot. I haven't really been talking that up this week. This is true. I'm, I'm being very, this is why the discipline of going back to the same prayer with God becomes important. It's not that God forgets. It's that I do. So I have to go back and go, Father, Teach me to love somebody unlovable today. Father, teach me to love somebody unlovable today. Because I need reminded, man. Because I'll forget and it'll be me and that baseball bat. Not really, but it is up here sometimes. I mean, you understand what I mean? Teach us this, Father. Teach us this. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the vine and we are the branches. Thank you that you have chosen in this world your people through Christ. You went hunting for us. You love us all and you love those who don't love you back. Father, teach us that kind of love. Teach us what it means to love those who are hard to love. It's easy to love those that are easy to love. It's easy to love people who love us back. It's easy to love people that are good to us. But it isn't always easy to love those that are antagonistic, hateful, neglectful. Show us what that looks like. And Father, may we keep bringing that prayer back to you, not because we think you're not listening, but because we know we're not listening. And so that we keep bringing that prayer back to you so we're on the lookout for how to love someone the way you love them. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.